The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, hey, when Megan and I moved back to Lincoln from St. Louis about 13 years ago, we we bought a house. Um, In fact, it's an old house. It's almost 120 years old now. When we bought the house, um, it wasn't much to look at, honestly, right? Uh, There it is up there. The roof was shot, all right? It had three different colors of asbestos siding on on it. Um, Our favorite, we affectionately referred to as puke yellow. There it is shown in the bottom right. That's our puke yellow asbestos siding. Um, It had layers upon layers upon layers with sometimes paint in between those layers of wallpaper just about everywhere all the way throughout it. Um, Storm windows, most of them were broke, needed repaired. Um, Animal urine soaked carpets. If you know, if you know what that can be like, that was that was there. Wiring issues, all kinds of stuff. Right now, when we closed on the house, it was ours. We had a new home, right? But also, there was a lot of work to do. And I tell you that story to build an illustration for the truth that is here for us this morning in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Last week, all right, last week we we dunked our hearts in the glorious reality of the first two verses of Romans 8. That because of what Jesus has done, right, by faith in him, we are united together with him. We're in Christ, to use Paul's language from verse 1. And, and as those who are in Christ, there is now, right now, no condemnation for us. Not if we belong to Jesus, there isn't. For those who have been counted right with God through faith in Jesus, for those who have been justified, that's the biblical word, not by our work, but by trusting in his, there is now no condemnation for you And there's never going to be. There never can be. And that is really, really good news. And we said last week that when that really sinks in, in your soul, it's like coming home. It's like coming home to a place that you've never been, but have somehow always belonged. You've got a new home. It's yours. The deal has closed Now, however, in verses 3 through 4 of Romans 8, Paul wants to tell us there's also a lot of work to do on this house of yours. Perhaps you've got a, you know, a roof of anger or pride over everything in your life or the the nasty siding of impatience or jealousy or selfishness. Maybe the wallpaper of your soul has a, a really ugly pattern of incessant worry and cynicism on it. Maybe the wiring of lust is still in the walls, or the plumbing of addiction, or same-sex attraction, or fear. Perhaps there's a, a big old tree of doubt in the backyard with its branches just leaning on you all the time. Hmm? Is the carpeting of your soul stained with what others have done to you? And every step you take on it is a reminder that maybe you're damaged. Are not loved, overlooked, unworthy, unimportant, good for nothing. Listen, what Paul wants to tell us in Romans 8, verses 3 through 4, is good news still. 
What he wants to tell us is that the gospel isn't just about no condemnation. It isn't just about justification. It's also, the gospel is also about sanctification. And if you're honest enough with yourself, whether you've been a Christian for four days or four decades, (laughs) there's a lot of work to do, isn't there? Now, it's really important to know that this new house of yours that needs some work, it's got an excellent foundation. I mean, no condemnation is the foundation if you belong to Jesus, right? It's never going away. There aren't any cracks in it at all. And there's there's never going to be. Your foundation is bulletproof. Like it, there never will be any foundation, any cracks in this foundation. And from that rock solid foundation, Paul works us very logically, very methodically to understanding how we're to go about the work of the Christian life, how we're to change, how we're to grow in godliness. Let's look at this text here in, in, in Romans chapter 8. It's page 944 in those church Bibles in front of you if, you if you don't have a copy of yourself. Romans chapter 8. I want you to see, uh, first thing I want us to see is all the conjunctions that Paul uses in this paragraph. Of course, it starts in verse 1 where he says, therefore, right? We talked about that two weeks ago. This is Paul saying, in, in light of everything that I've just written in chapters 1 through 7, here are some incredible truths to just relax into in the arms of Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for or because, all right, the reason that there is now no condemnation is because, you see the logic? Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death for or because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And here comes another conjunction. In order that. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Follow Paul's logic here. There's no condemnation for Christians because... We've been set free in Christ because God did some stuff. And he did some stuff so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, that's a lot, all right? I I get it. That's a lot. Um, But all I want you to see is that there is a logical progression here. Paul is extremely logical. And as we're looking at verses 3 and 4, we have to understand that they are intimately hardwired to verses 1 through 2. It's built on the foundation. Now, verses 3 and 4 are also a mouthful, you know. Um, And to make sure that we're really picking up what Paul's putting down here, we're going to ask four questions today of what in the world he's talking about. Number one, what was the law unable to do and why? Number two, what has God done in light of that? Verse three tells us he's done some stuff. What did he do? Question three, why did he do it? And the answer might surprise you. And then question four, how does this all work out in my life? Four questions, two verses. Again, number one, what was the law unable to do and why 
Verse 3 reads, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What couldn't the law do? Well, for starters, it couldn't justify us, could it? That was a major theme in chapters 1 through 7. Perhaps the the best one-verse summary for this point would be from chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul just very plainly states, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. And so we cannot become justified before God, counted right with him, like in good and right with God, right? We can't get into the correct position in in the right standing with God by our works, by keeping the law, his good rules and commands and statutes. All of our best works can never get us right because very, very deep down, we're sinful and stand condemned. And that goes all the way back to the garden. No, we are justified, Paul has said instead, by faith in Jesus, by trusting in his life and his work on the cross and over the grave. The first thing that the law cannot do is justify us. But there's actually a second thing that Paul has been telling us and wants to tell us that the law cannot do either, and that's sanctify us. It can't produce in us deep, lasting change. We saw this in Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul is agonizing over his own self-efforts, his, his desires, and yet also his inabilities and hypocrisies. Remember that? He wants to do good, but he can't. He doesn't want to do wrong, but he does. He's tried and he's trying, but he can't fix it at all. He can't clean up the house of his soul no matter how hard he tries, no matter how much he delights in God's law, he can't perfectly keep it. The law, see, it it exposed him. It confronted him. It revealed sin to him. It It even motivated him toward obedience, but it couldn't change him. Not in the deep and lasting ways. You see, the law cannot sanctify us any more than it can justify us. Why? Well, because, Paul says in verse 3, the law was weakened by the flesh. That's why. Notice he doesn't say the law is weak. He doesn't say the law is is flawed or ineffectual. There's nothing wrong with the law. God's law, it's... God's law is holy, right, and perfect, and good. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with us and our flesh. And we're going to talk about this more next week, the flesh business. But for now, let's just define it simply as what you and I are naturally apart from the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the flesh. Okay, pretty simple. I mean, we'd be more nuanced on that, but we'll save that for next week, perhaps. It's man in man's natural, sinful, fallen state, including all of our moral and religious and intellectual and emotional capacities, and yet void of the Spirit, void of regeneration, a new heart, new life, void of any supernatural action going on in us. That's the flesh. And so the law itself isn't weak, but also the the law doesn't work by itself. It has to work through us, through our flesh. And that's the weakness. The weakness, the failure of the law, if we're to say it that way, is due to the fact that it has to work through our flesh. Here's a helpful illustration. Okay, when we bought our old house, 
um, there was a flagpole in the front yard. And for no particular reason, we're not flagpole people, okay? No condemnation if you're a flagpole person. Just that, that wasn't what we were going for or anything like that. Love the flag, all that. Um, but that's not the, the look that we wanted in our front yard. So um, take the flagpole down, and then I've got to get the concrete footing out. Have you ever tried this? <laughs> Holy moly. Um, I get my shovel, and I start digging. And um, turns out when they put it in, the prior owners created a crater like the size of a full-size van and then just filled it with concrete and stuck a pole in the middle of it or something like that. Um, so I'm digging, and I'm digging, and I'm digging. I'm thinking, China's got to be down here somewhere, you know? And just keep going and, and keep going, growing more and more frustrated with this hunk of concrete in my front yard, right? And I don't know about you, but um, I actually get stronger when I get frustrated. I don't know if that's... I don't know if that's like a superpower unique to me or if that's, if, if that's all of us or not. Um, but I get, I get frustrated, and I've got the tip of my shovel. I finally get underneath the concrete, and I'm just frustrated. So I'm strong, right? And I'm going and going and, until the shovel breaks. Exactly, right? That's, you knew that was coming. And um, the shovel breaks. To, and to be more precise, though, the handle of the shovel breaks. Um, the metal spade of the shovel was just fine. There was nothing wrong with the metal spade of the shovel. It was strong. It was good. It was right and perfect. It was doing its job, you know, just like the law. But the handle was like the flesh. Nothing wrong with the spade, but it was weakened, wasn't it, by the handle. And as it turns out, we can't use a spade without a handle. And so the law, see, good, right, and perfect as it is, had to be carried out by us in the wooden handle of our flesh. And because of our weakness, it couldn't produce what it was intended to. It couldn't change us. Now, think about change for a minute. Um, there's all kinds of things we'd like to change in this world, isn't there? I mean, in, in the world or in relationships, in yourself. Think about longings that you have, even as a, as a believer. Areas that you want to see in your life, you want to see them change. But man, how does that work? How can deep, lasting change really happen? Do we just need more information? More TED Talks? Do, do we just need more education? Is that it? Will more laws help? Or less laws? Will that help? Or better, different? You know, is that what we need? Well, just if everybody could just be more empathetic, would that get it done? What, what about religious moralism? You know, if everybody would just follow a set of religious rules, that's another avenue that people seek change. Just tell me the rules and I'll try the best to keep them. And if everybody would just do that, we'd all be fine, right? Listen, all those things can be helpful to an extent. But none of them actually goes deep enough, do they? You know that to be true if you've been a Christian for any amount of time. They don't get to the heart. They're all outside-in solutions, behavioral change solutions that essentially say, hey, could you try a little harder next time? Could you do a little better? <laughs> Only Christianity comes along and says the answer isn't try harder. Real change doesn't happen outside in. It happens from the inside out. 
Do you want to change? <laughs> of course you do if you're a believer. None of, none of us are perfect. Even if you're not a believer, there's things that you want to see changed in and around you. What Paul is contending for here is that the law, our efforts, our, own, our, our efforts on our own to keep it, the law cannot sanctify us any more than it can justify us. And therefore, we need an actual Trinitarian miracle to see dr- deep, true, lasting change happen in our lives. A Trinitarian miracle. And he tells us about it. He, he tells us next what God has done. What has God done? Second half of verse 3, well, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This is pretty incredible. Um, in half a sentence, in half a sentence here, Paul packs in the doctrine of the incarnation and the doctrine of the atonement in just a half a sentence. You know, this is what he can do. Notice he's telling us what God has done. Beginning of verse 3, for God has done. He says, God the Father in heaven, the the God of all creation, the God of the the cosmos, the the Holy One over everyone and and everything, sent his own Son. Jesus tells us himself famously in John 3.16 that God did this. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves you. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And so listen, if you ever struggle with thinking, I'm not sure if God loves me. Don't look around at your circumstances to decide. Look instead at the incarnation of Christ. It's right there, loud and clear. He loves you. Look at God and and see him out of his great love sending his one and only son for you. And he sent him, Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. So Jesus, God's son, is sent not in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh, which means on the one hand, he's the eternal son of God, you know, equal with the father in power and glory and deity. He was sent. He, was, he wasn't created and then sent. He was ex- eternally existed with the father in heaven. And when the fullness of time had come at just the right time, he was sent and he took on human flesh. He incarnated. He was truly man like us. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. His human nature wasn't some kind of mirage. It was a reality. He had a rational soul just like us. He experienced things like tiredness, just like you. Weariness, just like you. Joy, just like you. Sadness, pain, grief, sorrow, just like you. Frustration and disappointment, just like you. Even temptation. He was tempted in every way as we are, Hebrews 4.15 teaches us, and yet, without sin. Here's what that means for you. Um, He gets it. He just gets it. Whatever you're dealing with today, whatever is going on 
in your life, whatever flavor of crazy your crazy is, he gets it. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and yet not in sinful flesh. He never sinned. He was the perfect spotless lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. This is the beginning of the Trinitarian miracle that produces change in us. God the Father sent his Son to save us. And in order to save man, the Son of God had to become man so that he could live the perfect life, perfectly fulfilling the law, and also die the perfect death as man, the God-man, in our place. This is the doctrine of the atonement, and it's captured in Romans 8, verse 3, in the two little words, for sin. Do you see them there in the text? God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, or as the NIV translation helpfully renders it, to be a sin offering. Jesus came and lived the perfect life. Then he died on the cross for sin. For whose sin? Well, it wasn't his own. He was sinless. No, it was for our sin. On the cross, Jesus died in your place as your substitute for your sin. He is the sin offering for your sin. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah prophesied about it this way in the Old Testament, saying, the Lord has laid upon him, laid upon Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And Paul adds that in so doing, he condemned sin in the flesh. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means way more than he expressed divine disapproval for sin by how he lived. You know, like he, he came and showed us up. He, and by his actions, by his example, he basically shamed us and said, shame on you for not doing what I did. That's, that would be reducing Jesus down to a moral example to follow. And guess what? Jesus didn't actually have to come incarnate to do that. He'd already done it by giving the law. <laughs> All you have to do is read. It also doesn't mean that he killed sin. And that sin, all sin is dead. Doesn't exist anymore. No such thing as sin. We're perfect now. Do you know that there are variants of Christianity that actually teach that lie? That once you're a Christian, you never sin anymore. Or that you can somehow, someday, some way, before Christ returns and you're perfected, that you can somehow become perfect in this life. If that were the case, we would have to cut Romans 6 and 7 and a whole lot of other pages out of our Bible. No, what we're told here is that God condemned sin, yours and mine, in the body of his very own son. He condemned sin in the flesh, Christ's flesh. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it was by coming in the likeness of sinful flesh that Jesus was able to be that sacrifice to offer atonement. He's the once-for-all sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. He took on all the condemnation that you and I deserve, all the wrath of God, the condemnation for all our sin, past, present, and future, is placed on the Son of the God in the flesh at the cross. And in his death, he condemns it all, taking, taking on the penalty that we deserve. He cancels it, thereby condemning condemnation. 
This is why, this is how Paul can share the good news that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But remember, there's more to the gospel than that. Um, the gospel isn't less than that, but it's, it's more than that. The gospel isn't just about no condemnation now. It isn't just about justification. It's also about sanctification, our growing in Christ's likeness. And so you've closed on the new house. It's a done deal, but there's a lot of work to do. We see that if we keep reading in our text. And remember the logic. There's, there's now no condemnation, verse 1, because you've been set free, verse 2, because God has done some stuff, verse 3, the incarnation and atonement, and he did it all why? Verse 4, in order that. In order that what? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the purpose that we're given in Romans chapter 8 for the incarnation and the atonement of Jesus. We better pay attention. It was to enable believers to fulfill the law. In other words, Jesus came and Jesus lived and Jesus died, taking on the penalty for sin in order to bring about obedience to the law. God's plan was never merely to have a group of uncondemned people join him in heaven, but rather a people who would walk with him, follow him, love him. Enjoy him, obey him, commune with him. Remember God's laws, right? His, his commands, his laws, his statutes, they're all good. He doesn't give them to us in the Old Testament because he's mean, domineering, and controlling, but instead because he knows us and loves us. And desires us to flourish. Just like a, a good parent here on earth gives rules to his kids here on earth because the parent loves the children and wants to see them flourish and knows what's best for them. So our good and perfect Father in heaven gives laws and rules and commands to us, his children, because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. He knows how we're tempted to run after little J joys and little P pleasures and little S satisfactions that really don't provide any lasting joy, pleasure, or, or satisfaction. And so he says to us lovingly as our wonderful, loving perfect Father in heaven, he says to you today through his good, right, and perfect law, Live like this and not like this. It's best for you. And consequently, when you do, when you live like that, you glorify him. And you'll actually enjoy him. You say to yourself and to everyone around you when you live like that, you say it with your mouth and you say it with your life, God is really good. 
he really knows what's up. His way really is good. It is the best. It's the pathway, the only pathway to capital J joy, capital P pleasure, capital S satisfaction, the deepest joy, lasting pleasure, ultimate satisfaction that never runs out. Our chief end, you see, is not to escape condemnation. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To, to glorify God by keeping His law. And we do that, as we do that, as we are sanctified, we do that as we are sanctified. That's what I mean to say. We glorify God as we are sanctified, as we grow in Christ-likeness, living increasingly according to His way, not perfectly, but progressively. There will always be work to do. But we do the work. There's a joke amongst some of my friends in the neighborhood with these old houses that it goes like this. They, it's usually people sitting around talking about all the stuff they're doing on their house. And then somebody will, it always happens, always say, well, remember, we don't own these houses. They own us. Ha, ha, ha. All right. And that totally breaks my illustration this morning because um, indwelling sin doesn't own us. Okay. We've been set free from it. But what my neighbors mean by that is that there will always be work to do. Right now, my gables need cleaned out. <laughs> there are birds' nests up there, and it is a disaster waiting to happen, right? I mean, it's, all, it's actually a disaster that's already happened. Um, I need to get up there on the ladder and get those things cleaned out, right? I got a couple storm windows that need some attention. They aren't going up and down like they used to. They're little plastic thingies broke on them again. Um, there's always paint to touch up. A fence is going to need to replace, be replaced someday. We'd really like to upgrade the kitchen. I still want to get electricity out to the garage. There will always be work to do. It's the same in our Christian life. There will always be work to do. There will always be more and more of us to bring into more and more conformity with Christ and His law and His way. But you know what one of the interesting, weird things is about home ownership? It's kind of fun to work on your house, isn't it? Can be. I mean, not always. You know, sometimes. There's a, there's a sense of joy that we get from a completed project or progress. When you step back at the end of the day and you say, look at this, look what's going on here. That's satisfying. Listen to how theologian John Stott talks about this in his commentary on Romans 8. He writes, Our freedom from the law, proclaimed, for instance, in chapter 7, verse 4 and 6, and chapter 8, verse 2, our freedom from the law is not freedom to disobey it. On the contrary, the law obedience of the people of God is so important to God that he sent his son to die for us and his spirit to live in us in order to secure it. Holiness is the fruit of Trinitarian grace, of the Father sending His Son into the world and His Spirit into our hearts. In other words, in order to see real change, deep, true, 
lasting change in our lives. You and I, we need an actual miracle of the triune God in our lives. And we've got it. This is exactly what God does. It's exactly what he's doing. It's exactly what Paul's trying to tell us, which helps us answer the fourth and final question. Man, how does it work? It works by going back to the end of verse 4 as we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, there's a whole other sermon here, and I've saved it for next week, because actually this flows right on into verses 5 through 8 as Paul contrasts what it means to live according to the flesh against what it means to live according to the Spirit. You're going to want to come back for that. But what I want to drive home this morning is the Trinitarian nature of the work of God in your life and how it is truly, truly miraculous. Again, God the Father has sent God the Son. He took on human flesh in the incarnation. He took on the punishment for your sin on the cross in the atonement. And when you trust in him, For the forgiveness of sins, a great, big, beautiful banner is raised up over your life that says, no condemnation. And because of that banner, you can relax a bit. The work isn't done, but you know now, if any point you mess it up... (laughs) You, you sin. The, the whole project isn't going to fall apart. It can't. There's no condemnation. And as you relax into the reality of no condemnation because of the Father sending the Son, you're also empowered by the sending of the Holy Spirit who lives in each of us who belong to Christ. And in fact, Paul's going to tell us in a couple of weeks here that, that you can't be in Christ without having the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of you. Every Christian everywhere, from the oldest to the youngest in this room, has the Spirit of God living in them. And it's the Spirit's work in us, only by the Spirit's work in us, that we're able to begin to walk in God's ways, what Paul calls walking according to the Spirit, and therefore fulfilling imperfectly, imperfectly. And with bumps and bruises along the way, God's law. Real change, friends, is the result of a triune miracle in your life. And real change is possible for you, Christian, because of the presence of the life-giving Holy Spirit in your life. And you might be thinking right now, that sounds great. But my house of a life is a complete disaster. You know? Like you don't even know what's, what's hiding in, in the walls of my soul. You might be thinking that. And you're right. I, I don't. Uh, but God does. He sees it all. You're not hiding anything from him. He did a full inspection before he purchased you on the cross. Paid for the, he paid for the really good one, you know? He knows exactly what he's gotten himself into. And he will see it through to completion. He's not looking to get out of it. 
He's not in over his head with you. You're not a money pit in his eyes. You're not a flip job either. He's hanging on to you. You're going to be his forever. The gospel, the good news, isn't just about the assurance of salvation. It's also about the assurance of sanctification. That's not a new concept. It's called in the Bible, the new covenant. Which you're a part of if you trust in Jesus. Listen to how Ezekiel foretells of this in the Old Testament. Maybe you want to turn there. It's in page 724 in my Bible. But in Ezekiel chapter 36, we'll also put this up on the screen. But in in Ezekiel chapter 36, we, we read this. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. What's that sound like? A little bit like no condemnation, doesn't it? And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause. Do you see that word? It it, it doesn't say encourage. It it doesn't say um, I will hope that you will walk in my statutes. No, Ezekiel says... The Lord says to us through Ezekiel, I'll put my Holy Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Notice here. The same people for whom it is true that they've been sprinkled clean. The same people for whom it is true that they have been delivered from all uncleannesses, cleansed from all iniquities, if we kept reading a little further, are the very same people whom God puts his spirit in and causes to walk in his statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. The same people Paul calls in Romans 8 verse 4, us. In other words, you don't get some of the new covenant without getting all the new covenant. Paul's saying the same thing as Ezekiel. 
He's not providing a buffet of truths for you to choose from with you deciding which ones are true for you and which ones are not. His logic is way too airtight for you to conclude that. No, just as certain, just as certain as there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, so also there is sanctification for those who are in Christ. God is doing work in you by his spirit. He is. And the spirit will continue doing work in you and he won't stop until he presents you without spot or wrinkle before the father on the last day, which the scriptures call glorification. The gospel is about all three. Justification, sanctification, glorification. That is all good news. Now, this sanctification is not an entirely passive work. We have a part to play, okay? Just in case you were like, oh, cool. That's like, go sit in a canoe somewhere and let God do it all. No, that's not quite how it works. We have a part to play. We'll talk about that more in the next couple weeks. But let's just end super practically today in some prayer. When was the last time that you prayed and just honestly asked the Holy Spirit to work some change in you. You don't think it's all up to you, do you? True change is the result of a Trinitarian miracle in your life. The Holy Spirit is an absolute essential component of that. And so when was the last time you just sat silently, maybe, in his transforming presence and said Spirit of God change me and then just you know waited for a little bit and then did it again the next day and the next day and you did it again the next day just presenting yourself honestly before the Lord and asking him to do what only he can do deep, deep down inside of you. Not according to your timeline. Not so that you get your way. So that he gets his in you. What's the current project? Hmm? Is it the wallpaper of worry? Is it the wiring of lust? Old puke yellow siding of selfishness? Maybe an outdated kitchen of control? Floorboards of fear, not knowing, not able to surrender, and you're not knowing to the all-knowing, all-loving, always-in-control Father. Whatever it is, would you bring it to him right now as I pray? And we just ask the Spirit to get in there deep. Let's pray. Father, Here we are. And we present ourselves to you. 
Father, would you make us attentive to your presence right here, right now? God, we love you. We, we really do. And we're not always the best at showing it, but we really love you. And we love you because you first love us from the, all the way back to the very beginning. Thank you for demonstrating your love for us by sending Jesus. We see him. We see him in his incarnation. We're about to spend a whole month celebrating it. We see him in his atonement. We see your love for us put on display for us while we were still sinners. Thank you that for those of us who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Thank you also that the gospel doesn't stop at no condemnation, but that you are at work in us right now by your indwelling Holy Spirit, changing us, growing us, maturing us, using all different kinds of means. That is good news for hard to change people like us. That is good news for desperate to change people like us. And so would you assure us right now of your sanctifying work in us. Help each of us now just come with open hands of faith and ask your spirit to work deep in us. in whatever ways you desire. Spirit of God, complete your labor of love in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.